The title for this evening's talk is The Current of True Being. <clears throat> there was a great saint, a woman saint who lived in India in the 20th century. Her name was Ananda Ma. Some of you are probably familiar with her her teachings. She died in, uh, 19, in the 1970s, just recently actually, in this uh, time of, of sages. And she said, there are two currents that are running through us. One is the current of the world, where want follows upon more want. And these wants can never lead us to fulfillment. And she said there was another current, and that was the current of one's true being, the current that establishes one in completion. She said, if one endeavors to fulfill oneself by entering this current, it will lead one to the perfect poise of one's true being. Sometimes, for some of us, we feel that current running through us. This current of true being, it may have a sense or an experience of where nothing needs to change. We really feel the, a kind of perfection in the experience that's happening for us. But these kinds of experiences, when we really feel that level of connection with all things, it's kind of elusive for us, for most of us. We get a little bit of a taste of that, and we long for more. Usually we're tossed back into the world of more wanting. And this wanting moves into a kind of demanding. And this is really the world of self. The world of me, I, mine, self. This current of true being, we might call it dharma. This connection with the dharma, the flow of the dharma. Or we may call it spirit. Or it may be that which is sacred, or that which we take to be sacred, or holy. Whatever kind of word that we want to put on that, it would be different for each person. But where is it? What is it? Can we really know it? And if we do, can we possess it? Can we call it our own? my true being. It seems this current of the world is so present. It's so present. We're told that we are going to find our fulfillment, our lasting fulfillment in the world if we can just get it right. If we can just get our experiences lined up in a certain way. And the conditioning for this message is so strong for us and particularly those of us who live in cities, you know, we see the billboards and, you know, the, the images, the pictures, the photos, the lights flashing this kind of message to us that look here, look here, look here, this is where you're going to get your fulfillment. The message really is that we can have anything we want if we can pay for it, if we've got enough dosh, as you say in England. I remember uh, reading in America about this company, you know, there's lots of entrepreneurs in America, 
and I saw this one company that was established that would, would, would manifest your greatest fantasy, whatever that is. You, you tell them what your fantasy is and they'll make it happen for you. You pay them a certain amount of money and, and they'll do it, you know, whether it's jumping out of a parachute or climbing a sacred mountain or something maybe not so sacred as well. And as we know, the media is starting to catch on to the language of the spiritual world, you know, starting to promise us that if we buy uh, their products, we will uh, even have enlightenment or nirvana or reach very high states of, uh, of, of, of mind. There's, there's one ad I pulled out of a, um, a magazine here in England it's an ad for these products called Kyusu, uh, and um, it's a philosophy for the body. And the, the picture is this sort of beautiful naked body and all these clouds, and then it says, uh, for thousands of years the philosophies of the East have taught us to treat the mind and the body as one. Now there's Kyusu. <laughs> yeah. And then it's a full spread, it opens up and it says, it is said that the practice of shiatsu can increase the flow of energy through the mind and body. Showering with kyusu has much the same effect. <laughs> you know, it's incredible that they can get away, you know, they can get away with it. They really think that it's going to make a difference, but maybe it does, you know. In the philosophy of kyusu, we attain enlightenment with awaken. Awaken is one of the body washes. So, you can attain enlightenment with awaken. Yellow, optimistic, the color of the rising sun. You know, they're really going for it. (laughs) Fresh, invigorating, stimulating for your mind, your body, and your soul. You know, this is the fast track to to enlightenment. That's really, you know, it's what we're being promised through the media and through the messages and the condition, it grabs our conditioning at such a deep level that this in fact is going to make a difference for us. I've been living out of, of, the, of America for quite a long time, for about 13 years, and uh, I notice different things when I go back. and. Uh, one of the things I noticed is that now you can buy computers in 10 different colors, you know, purple and pink and orange and green, and, you know, the iMacs come out, come out with all these colors like flavors of ice cream. You know, you, and you can just choose which, which flavor you want. And it, it's just, these things really strike me that they, uh, we, can, we can design our environments to bring these pleasurable sensations that we long for, that we desire. When I was in India, I've been going to India um, over the last uh, 13 or so winters to teach in Bodhgaya, teach retreats in Bodhgaya, where the Buddha was enlightened. And each time I'm there, of course, I'm reminded of the real privilege that we have here in the West. The contrast is so extreme. And in February, when I was there uh, just this last winter, I was in the south at 
um, uh, one of an Indian woman's house. She was a doctor in a village, and, and I can't remember where the place was. It was south of, of Madras. And my friend, one of my uh, friends from England, took me there to meet this woman who was really quite an exceptional lady. And while I was at her house, she lived in a rather middle-class section of, the, of, of this particular area. It wasn't a poor area. And we needed to go to the shop to just get some food for the, for the meal. And so we just went down to the corner, the little corner shops, and on each corner there was a little shop that would serve that street or that little area. And in the shop, it seemed, which was really just the size of a closet, it seemed that it had everything that we could possibly need. It had the toothpaste and the detergent and fruit and vegetables and eggs and biscuits, rice, lentils, milk, yogurt. And I, I was very much struck by the fact that in this little closet contained all the essentials that we need. And my friend was pointing out to me that, um, that in, she had spent a lot of time in India, more, more in the villages in the rural area, that the, the whole concept of choice is something that most of the Indian people don't have. They don't think about choices. They just go to the store and get what they need. They get the, the rice or their toothpaste or their soap. And it really did strike me how that whole uh, conditioning has come for us here in the West that it's, in, to an extent, I mean to a huge extent, it's gotten out of hand. When I uh, came back, just a few months later, I was teaching up in Canada, and there's vast open spaces up in Canada, and I was around an area called Regina in Saskatchewan, and they, uh, because they had so much space, and because superstores are starting to uh, be more of the norm, they built a very, very large Walmart out in the prairie, and when we drove by it, it was the largest store I had ever seen in my life. It was just bigger than any superstore I had seen in America or anywhere else. And I drove back and I had recently had this experience of looking in the closet <laughs> of this shop at all, these, all the essentials and then drove past this, <laughs> this gigantic superstore and my mind just kind of boggled. I thought, what could possibly be in there? What, what could they possibly fill this store with that people think they need? And it was a huge uh, impact for me in that particular moment, and those, the contrast of those two experiences. Um, I still um, am asking that question. <laughs> it is this want that follows upon more want. Just want follows upon more want. And I think to a great extent that m people don't know what they're doing. We don't know. We don't know that we're caught in this conditioned response of wanting. Recently, in the last few years, I've been reading some of the original texts of the Buddha. And one of the most powerful sayings um, that impacted me, jumped out in one of my readings. And the Buddha says, 
whatever one frequently thinks and ponders on, that will become the inclination of their mind. Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders on, that will become the inclination of their mind. So if the mind is turned towards wanting again and again and again, that's going to become the way the mind inclines. It it reinforces itself through this wanting to the point where it could be a complete unconscious process where the mind just keeps moving towards wanting, wanting, wanting. If the wanting mind is not seen clearly for what it is, which is just a pattern of wanting, it's just this conditioned pattern of wanting itself, the wanting gets reinforced, it gets solidified, and it strengthens the sense of I, the sense of self that I want or I need, I demand. And this I, the sense of of self, grows and takes control start taking control of the whole reality. I want. I want. And sometimes I demand. And this I want happens at every level of the being, the material, the emotional, the mental, the physical, through the material realm, through the possessions, the things that we have, the things that we want. Our emotional level, through wanting certain emotional Uh, feelings uh, within ourselves and not wanting others, wanting the pleasurable ones, pushing away, denying the ones that are painful, the mental realm through wanting certain mind states, uh, mind states that are going to make us feel good and happy, uh, pushing away the ones that don't. The physical realm, um, how, how we want the condition of this body, I want this body to be a certain way. I demand that I look a certain way or this body doesn't age and grow old. Whatever our demand is, this I want, just permeating all the levels of our being. And this I want cannot exist without I don't want. I want, I don't want. The two play together. And when we, when we express that I don't want, This gives rise to anger about the way things are, and this anger takes the form of mild irritation, just mild anxiety, all the way to full-blown rage. It gives rise to disappointment because our expectations don't get met. We can fall into self-pity because we're not getting what we want and it's only happening to me and everybody else has it really good except me the whole realm of general negativity, complaining, judging, comparing, basically just a bad mood, just a bad mood. The whole world is centered around me, and this ego, our ego, our self, really gets solidified in this play, this play of our, of our reactions. On the first day of a retreat, we can, um, most of us can experience a lot of this want, the world of wanting. You know, we can, we often experience particularly five difficult mind states of, of desire, or wanting, or aversion, not wanting, 
uh, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. Doubt about you know, why we came here, ourselves, the teachers, the place. And this all gives rise to this uh, re- reactivity and confusion, not wanting what we have or, or um, uh, being, being in reactivity. Because we can't really feed our desires. We can't, the, the conditions here aren't set up for us to uh, have our impulses satisfied. You know, the impulse to, to ring a friend or to talk to somebody or to switch on the TV or the radio or run out and uh, maybe get a cigarette or a, or a drink, whatever it is. We can't, we're, we're, we don't have any of that available to us. And so we can feel, uh, we might feel some kind of a, a withdrawal or almost like a detox uh, condition where, 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 where we don't have the things that we're used to having. And we can feel that very viscerally and it can feel quite unpleasant in the body. We can feel a kind of agitation or restlessness in these kind of conditions. And if you're relatively new, you might ask yourself, or might have asked yourself today, why am I putting myself through this? You know, why, why do I even stay here with this unpleasantness that I feel in myself? Or if, even if you're more experienced and you're having some difficulty uh, through, the, through the, the morning or the afternoon or whatever, that can bring about doubt, doubt about the practice and what I'm doing here. No. You can ask yourself, why should I deprive myself in this way? This situation can seem very depriving. You could say, I, I could have I gone somewhere and had a really good time this week, you know, and I've come to a situation like this, where it might just be one pain after the next, or one um, disappointment or unpleasant sensation or whatever after the next, you know. I could have gone to the French Riviera, or <laughs> they have all these cheap um, flights from, uh, from, from uh, London, I understand. But yet, what's going to change that habit? What's going to change the habit of searching after fulfillment in things, in situations, in people, in our mind states, in our bodies? What's going to change that habit? of searching after. What is going to help us wake up to and discover that which will truly give us lasting satisfaction? Something that I think each one of us know is available to us that is going to be utterly fulfilling and it has nothing to do with the things outside of us, or even our inner conditions of mind and body. But that habit of searching is so powerful. And I call it a habit. I think this is a a useful word, because we tend to personalize this. We tend to make ourselves wrong when we find ourselves uh, falling into desire or anger or doubt, sleepiness, restlessness, whatever it is. And if we can see that it's just a habit, just a condition of mind to uh, fall, to incline in that particular way, 
it's in a way just the human predicament. And we come here to use the practice, to use the teachings, to help us understand and find a way out of this habit of mind, this tendency of mind that leads us away from our true and lasting fulfillment. I wanted to tell you a little story about um, uh, something that was reported to me by my sister, um, which is a good example of this predicament of wanting that we find ourselves in. My sister lives in Los Angeles, and uh, there's a lot of wanting (laughs) around Los Angeles. since she was quite pulled into this whole world of, con- of buying and, and, and consuming and kind of making herself look more beautiful with more clothes and shoes and, and this and that, she decided to put herself on a 30-day commitment that she would not go into any store and she would not look at any magazine, she would not look at any newspaper that would stimulate that wanting for her. And so she made this commitment, and she said, for 30 days, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to do this. And it just so happened that she went on a, tr- a weekend away with her husband uh, to a place called Idlewild, up in the hills. And in a lot of these places now, um, there's, when you go away to little uh, hideaways, there's lots of shops. There's really, in some ways, not a lot of other things to do, but go to the shops and look at things to buy. So they were walking around the village, the town of Idlewild, and her husband wanted to go look at some shoes. And so even though she knew she had this commitment not to go to any stores, she decided she would just go into the store with him because she wasn't going to buy anything, she wasn't really going to look at anything, and she'd just go into the shop. But while she was in there, she saw a pair of Teva sandals. I don't know if you know what Tevas are, but they're very good outdoor sandals. And even though she wasn't going to buy them, she decided to try them on. (laughs) And they were only $20, and they were really comfortable. And then the obsession began. She left the shop without buying it, buying the sandals, but all day she couldn't help but thinking about it. She said to herself, I can afford them. I like them. Why can't I have them? I don't want to do this 30-day commitment anyhow. No, and she would just go through that train of thought. She couldn't stop thinking about these pair of sandals. And then she said to herself, okay, put it down. You're not going to buy them. You're not going to go into the store. Tomorrow's a new day. You'll deal with it tomorrow. So the next day, she's back in the store. (laughs) I love them. I need to have these sandals. She went through the whole thing all over again. And then she tried to talk her husband into buying them for her because she knew that she couldn't do that. And then she had to pull away again. And she would feel the pain of this desire, this obsession, this needing to have those pair of sandals. And she would say, I'll never make it through the 30 days. This is it's impossible to do this. And then 
because she really was working this with, with this commitment, she, she realized that by not going into the store and not going near it really was going to make things e- easier for her. So the next day, it was only a weekend away, so the next day they left town. And she said, thank God, no, I can't get them. I can't get the shoes. And she was relieved to be uh, finished with that obsession. But the interesting thing is that when she got home, when she walked into her uh, closet, she saw how many pairs of sandals she already had. She, she looked and she said, uh, she just burst out laughing. She couldn't believe how she got caught in that obsession with something that she didn't even need. Didn't. When she looked at what the reality was, she had 10 pairs of sandals that would do the job. And then she really reflected on that. She, she thought about how she said, I need them, you know, I want them. And she was really amazed at herself and really learned the lesson. It's like she really got it. She, she just knew that she needed to stay out of places where, where the desire was so strong and not put the temptation in front of her because she saw where the, where the uh, weakness was in her own pattern of mind. And really, she said after that point, it was easy. Um, within a week or two, that the whole craving was gone and the 30 days turned into 35 days. And this was about a year ago. And after the year, there's really been a shift in that particular pattern of craving for her. And it's a very, very potent story, I think, that how we can so easily get caught by these um, temptations that become so important within our own mind and become so believable. You know, like that, that object is the only thing in the world that's going to make a difference or whether the object is something outside of us, or whether it's even the way that our, uh, the state of our own mind or the condi- condition of our own body. You know, we are convinced that if things, if, we, if things go a particular way, it is going to make all the difference in the world. It becomes so believable for us. one more. Maybe some of you have seen this cartoon. Um, I'll put it up on the board afterwards. But it's a cartoon that really exemplifies this very thing that I'm talking about. I don't know if you can see it from here, but there's this little guy, this little character who's just sitting there, kind of like sitting, looking like he's kind of sitting in meditation, actually. And then there's some bubbles that come up. And he goes, hmm, what's that? And then he kind of opens his eyes and he goes, looks good. And then the next frame is like, I want it. And then the next frame, he's really starting to go a little bit mad. He's, I gotta have it. And then he's really wild and he's saying, if I don't have it, I shall die. And then he's like totally mad, totally frenzied, foaming at the mouth. And yes, 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 yes. And then he completely collapses. And then he sits up again. He's just sitting there, recovering. And then the thought comes, hmm, what's that? (laughs) 
and then the whole thing starts over again. This is what we find ourselves in. And I'm sure that you've seen this today. You know, whatever that particular hmm (laughs) that arose for you, you know, whether it was uh, needing to take a nap or lie down or do yoga or a cup of tea or, um, you know, whatever, whatever it is, the fantasy that arose, something that will, hmm, much more interesting than what's happening here in this moment. You know, just easily just takes us away. The mind moves away from that still place and we forget. We forget. How many times has your mind moved today? Moved thinking, I'd be better off somewhere else. I'd be better off if something else was going on. Become so believable. That habit of mind that carries us off into different realms, different fantasies. As if this moment is not enough. This is really our predicament never feels like it's enough right here. But yet something brings us back. You know, something keeps us here. You know, this commitment that you've made to stay here, even though at times it can be quite difficult or boring or confusing. You know, something tells you, something reminds you to stay here, to come back into this present moment to discover what's here right now that can be revealed for you. Does anything have to change, really? Does anything have to change? What do we really need right now that would be more fulfilling for us? Meditation, all meditations, are simply the art of returning, returning, coming back, coming back. Whether the meditation is one of mindfulness or visualization, questioning, prayer, mantra, koan, all the different meditations, they're all a reminder to come back, to return, to help us discipline our chaotic mind, that wandering searching mind, searching for something that's going to do it for us. That returning, the meditation, is like steadying a a canoe in rough waters. We steady our attention on an object in our meditation. Just keep coming back. Keep coming back with firmness, with kindness, with attentiveness. And in this way, It helps us to cultivate a tender heart. This is from St. Francis. Bring yourself back to the point quite gently. Even if you do nothing during the whole of your hour, but bring your heart back a thousand times, though it went away every time you brought it back, your hour would be well employed. Just returning, returning, turning back to the stillness from that world of wanting, 
the world that moves us away from the stillness within ourselves, moves us away from that place where things are already complete, where nothing needs to be added and nothing needs to be taken away. Do you have a sense of that? You know, that sense of that, that that possibility of resting into a place of real completion in yourself. And even though it may be momentary or temporary, those are still very important glimpses into possibility, the possibility of our nature. When we allow for that, when we allow for that opening into our true being, to that current of our true being, when the mind of wanting is still, there's the possibility for us to to kind of touch the wonder of life itself, to touch that which is really all around us, which is awake, happening, pulsating around us in every moment. We, when we're not demanding, when we're not wanting, breath happens. The sun rises, the sun sets, birds sing, babies are born, people die. It's all just happening. It's all the great mystery of this life that we are living. There's a Zen poem, haiku, a haiku. Sitting quietly, doing nothing, spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Not much that we have to do here, you know. We're just attempting to remember to come back to that place within ourselves that's already still, that's already quiet, where we can wake up to the wonder of this life and this existence. So can we be quiet for even an instant? Quiet enough where the wanting, the demanding isn't imposing on us, and where we can know, where we can, we can taste or touch that current of our true being. And when we touch it, we find that it not only pulses through our own being, but it's the same current that's pulsating through all of life, all around us, through the trees, the birds, the wind, the grass, the fish. We can... We can glimpse that here through the silence, through the stillness of the conditions here. It's a wonderful opportunity for us. This is from an 11th century Chinese poet and artist, Su Tung Po. The roaring waterfall is the Buddha's golden mouth. The mountains in the distance are his pure, luminous body. How many thousands of poems have have flowed through me tonight? And tomorrow I won't be able to repeat even one word. 
You know, it's like we don't have to hold on. We don't have to hold on to even these wonderful words of the Dharma or the insights that awaken for us, the poems that flow through our own mind. You know, tomorrow I won't be able to repeat even one word. We're always thrown back in to that emptiness, to that stillness, to that place where it's fresh or it's new, where we begin again. So we return back to the silence. How wonderful that we have this opportunity here. I've already sensed it myself coming here today, being in the retreat, just some moments sitting here and just touching it in again to the preciousness of that stillness, of that silence, and, and feeling the, the, the joy of that connection again. You know, that this, this place that we're at really offers this for us here, and how precious, precious it is that each and every one of us have the conditions in our life right now that allowed us to be here for this. So I hope that over these days you have this taste of this delicious wine that is waiting for us. Let's sit quietly for a few minutes. 